All right, good. Well, let me pray. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you, uh, even with all the strangeness and the restrictions and the challenges of this season, uh, we are so thankful that you are faithful, uh, that you do provide, that you do call us together as your body, as brothers and sisters. And Lord, we just pray that you would remind us of that this morning. Pray that um, even with the uh, limitations and using kind of virtual connection with each other, um, that that wouldn't impede or restrict your ability to speak to us and to work in us. And so we just thank you for this time. And we ask that, again, the preaching of your word, the teaching of scripture would be used, spirit, um, in our heart and in our mind to renew us and change us for your glory and your name. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so uh, if you're, you know, you've been jumping in with us, we are on week three of a series called Recalculating. And what we've been trying to do is make sure that we're not just kind of throwing away the next month, right? Throwing away kind of this lockdown, throwing away these restrictions as just like, ah, don't know what to do, not going to do anything. Uh, we really want to look at what are some of the practices, what are some of the ways that we can be really thinking intentionally about this season and, and looking really at disciplines and rhythms and understanding that practice is preparation for the future. And last week, we looked at the importance of resting, um, not just relaxing and binging, uh, but actual Sabbath rest and what that looks like, and specifically answering Jesus's call and invitation to rest in him, okay? And now today, we're gonna turn the corner, look at another practice. Um, we look specifically at our commitment to learning the Bible, okay? Learning the Bible and studying and understanding the scope and story of the Bible and how to actually apply it. So show of hands, how many of you are already behind in your Bible reading plan for the year? <laughs> yeah, so guilty, guilty as charged, okay? Uh, some of you didn't put your hand up, you're like, joke's on you, I don't have a plan to read my Bible, right? Uh, that's worse, it's not better, okay? <laughs> but but that, that, that's just the reality. Here we are, we're, we're not even a month into the year, we're already feeling like a, a, a guilt or a shame of like, I can't even read my Bible, what kind of Christian am I? I can't believe this. But that's not what I want our posture to be looking at this. I don't want us to be trying to look at this as a, like we're gonna do it out of duty, we're going to do it out of guilt and shame because that's not how discipleship works. Discipleship is out of delight. And there's going to be seasons in our life and in our year where we fall behind, where we are, are doing much better than other times. And that's just life. But here's what I want us to understand. If there's anything you hear me say this morning, church, here's what we need to know. That if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian, the greatest threat to your life next to a prayerless life is a closed Bible. The greatest threat to your life as a whole person following after Jesus is a closed Bible, okay? Not COVID, not restrictions, not the vaccine, not the president of the United States, not the liberals, not other people, not the devil, okay? The greatest threat to your spiritual health and spiritual life as a whole disciple is living your life, trying to live your life, without the words of God who has saved you. It is so, so important. And that's what I want us to see this morning. I want us to see the right um, 
that devotion is driven by delight in the God who has saved us. And that that's how I approach scripture. That's how I come to my Bible. Not out of, not out of duty, not out of like, oh, I'm keeping track and, and I'm checking the box, but actually saying, if I'm not being word shaped, if I'm not being shaped by the God that I love and trust and am following after, then it is impossible to live a truly full life as a disciple of Jesus, okay? And then just understand that words, words themselves, one thing the new age movement has gotten partially right is that words actually do change things. Not in the throw them into the cosmos as if that works, but in the fact that words actually shape you. Words do teach you. Every day, words are shaping you. It is what words do. And words from inside of us, words from other people, words from culture, everything actually, all words shape. They, that's what they do. And I actually would argue that the New Agers have gotten, have started a little late because we see that from the very first pages of the Bible, that words, the word of God shapes things. It makes a difference. It actually gives life. But if the words of God are not shaping you and reminding you daily of who God is and who you are, someone else's words will. The cultural teleprompter will. An alternative set of values will. You will be shaped by words daily. If the story of God is not shaping you daily and, and, and just calling you into it daily, another story will. Another story about purpose origins, life, values, identity, another story will shape you, okay? So just listen, if God gets your attention for 30 minutes a day, but Netflix, Instagram, Facebook, or your gaming console gets you for three hours a day, how, how, how do you think you're gonna be shaped? Like, do you think that, that that's just like magical formula? I can just live like everyone else, not prioritize the words of God and the story of God and then live differently. It is impossible, brothers and sisters, impossible. So here's the question I want to hang as we jump into looking at scripture and the role of scripture. What will you allow to shape you in 2021? Whose words will you prioritize and give permission to shape you, to shape you, to form you, to, to invite you into the story that you are going to live in this year, okay? And second question, what do you think the biggest weakness in the church in North America is today? Now, if we pay attention, over the last year, there's been lots of answers to that. Lots of different answers pitched for what our biggest problem is, the biggest threat to the church in North America. There's been all sorts of interesting proposals for what is the biggest threat to the church in North America today. I'll tell you what it is. The biggest weakness in the church in North America today is biblical illiteracy. We do not know our Bible. We do not know the story of God. Now here's a few like scary stats and I try to like not use all of them because it just ends up becoming like depressing and frustrating. But only 36% of professing evangelicals read their Bible every day. So 75% of people who believe they are Christians are being shaped by other stories and other words all day, every day. 45% of church people, people who attend church, read their Bible more than once a week with one of five professing Christians not reading their Bible, period. And maybe for you, this week was that week. You, just, you literally did not read your Bible. You did not study. You did not get into the word. Maybe that's you. 82% uh, of evangelicals think that God's, God helps those who helps, help themselves is a Bible verse. 
and only less than half can actually name all four gospels. Uh, my favorite, because I like the Old Testament, is that 50% of professing Christians believe that Sodom and Gomorrah are husband and wife. <laughs> so, so it gets absurd when you actually start going, I'll stop there just so we can like, you know, not have any more negativity. But, but the reality is that the Bible that we claim to cling to, the Bible that we like to quote when it's convenient for us or our political motivations or our social activism, that Bible, we don't actually know it. We don't know it. We are illiterate when it comes to what the purpose of scripture is and what scripture actually says. So today, if there's anything we need more of, church, is anything you need more of and I need more of, it's more of scripture and not quantitatively, not just more information. You don't need quantitative, more information about the Bible, but you do need deeper understanding and better qualitative formation of your understanding of the Bible. And that's the, that's the key is that we need to go deeper. A surface level Christian cultural understanding of the Bible is what led us here, is what led us to where we are, where people actually think that they're Christians, say that they are, and then do not actually delight in and have a priority of the words of God and the story of God. And it's very dangerous. So we must go deeper. You don't need more information, but what you do need is more exposure to the formation that the word of God offers us. And that requires us to go deeper. Requires us to understand that Genesis is not about a talking snake. That Noah is not about a flood in a boat. That Jonah is not about a big fish. That Gideon is not teaching us to lay out a fleece. That David and Goliath is not telling you how to conquer the giants of your life. That there weren't actually three wise men. The Holy Spirit is not about speaking in tongues. And Revelation is not about the end times, vaccines, microchips. And Christianity is not about going to heaven when we die. It's not about any of those things. And we would believe that it is until we, need, we actually get a better and deeper understanding of the story of God. So, so honestly, you can know something and not understand it. You get that, right? Like you can know lots of things and not understand those things. We need to actually understand the faith that we cling to. We need to understand the Bible that we point to. And many of us do not understand it. We know stuff, but we don't understand it. So let's go 2 Timothy 3. It's a favorite passage of many about the nature of scripture, what the Bible is and what the Bible's for. And let me remind you that in the summer of last year, we did a, I think it was about eight or nine weeks through scripture. We did a, a whole series on scripture. So I encourage you to go back. I know for many of you, it was very encouraging and it was very helpful for how we see our Bible. But today's gonna be kind of Cole's notes of some of that stuff that we visited in the summer. But 2 Timothy 3 Verse 14 through 17. It's going to pop up on the screen for you here too. Big brother Paul is writing to Timothy, telling him, warning him about what shapes him. And here's what he says. But as for you, okay, so notice, but as for you. So there's a difference. Right before this, Paul was stressing, this is how other people are deceived. They just go on living their life for them and about them. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it and how from a child, from childhood, you have actually been acquainted with the sacred writing scripture, 
which are, here's the purpose, able to make you wise for salvation through faith, trust in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to say, so because that's the purpose of scripture. So now here's what the, the, the nature of scripture is. Verse 16, all scripture, all the writings that we find within Old Testament and New is breathed out by God. And it's profitable, it's usable for four things, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in rightness so that the man and woman of God might be complete, whole, and equipped for every good work. I love these verses. I absolutely love what Paul is doing here to remind Timothy, a young Timothy, of what scripture is and how scripture is supposed to be used. And notice where he starts. He starts by saying that all scripture is breathed out by God, meaning that it's from God and to humanity. Okay, but it's not just from God into humanity because it didn't just drop out of the sky on kind of like golden uh, pamphlets, but it's from God and to human beings, but also through human beings. Notice that, that we see it's God's word through human words, that it's God's breath through human voices that we have within the Old Testament and New, we have 66 books, we have 40 human authors, we have three different continents, three different languages over the course of 1,500 years of human history, but one unified story pointing us to Jesus and one divine author orchestrating all of it. And every time Jesus speaks about scripture, this is always awesome, he holds this tension in perfect, perfect balance, right? He doesn't need to stress the divine quality or the human quality, which is what we do kind of like in our fundamentalist and our so-called progressive kind of versions of Christianity today. But Jesus actually holds both in perfect tension, saying that it, scripture is inspired by God and written by human beings. So it's like, well, what is it? Which one is it? Is it inspired by God or is it written by humans? Tell me. It's like, yes, <laughs> yes. It's not either or. Even I know we love those. We love either or, right? It's a both and. It is yes. God didn't override human authors and human experience. He inspired them through experience. He didn't just inspire scripture mechanically and robotically. They got into a trance and they kind of did like, oh, thus saith the Lord, right? He inspired them organically because he's the God who created them. He used human experience and human history and human culture and language and their gifts and their talents and the day and age that they lived to communicate things that were timeless about his character, his purposes, and ultimately his redemption of people. That's, that's the point of scripture. And so I see this. I love, I love music. Um, I was never, um, like, I didn't have musical instruments that I learned as a kid because I was too busy, like, fighting, right? So we grew up kind of fighting, boxing, and I didn't have time to, you know, tickle the ivory because I was punching faces, right? Um, but I love music. Like, I, I just, I, I am so passionate about, I love watching musicians, listening to vocalists and singers do what they do best and just watch the mastery of their craft. I love it, right? So I'm a huge, huge music fan. absolutely love it. The question that I thought about that this week as I was thinking about this is like when I watch an artist with an instrument, right, or their voice being that instrument, is the music itself touching me because it's coming from the instrument or the musician? Yes, right? right? It's, coming, it's coming from the artist themselves and the instrument, the musician and the instrument that the music is coming through. 
This is exactly what scripture is. And it should leave us in awe. Scripture should leave us with this aesthetic, artistic love and passion for the God who is actually breathing out his breath through the human voices, that God is actually orchestrating and demonstrating his beauty in and through the human instruments that he has used across history. That's what Paul is getting at here. That's the nature of Scripture. And we don't need to shy away from that. We, we actually need to celebrate that. And that's how we rightly understand even some of the complexities that we run into, even some of the weird stuff in there, even some of the questions that we have, that's how we approach it. And with that posture, we actually come to be embedded in it in a way that can do what Paul says next. He, he points out four things that scripture actually does to us. Okay, you notice that. He says, so what is scripture for? And he gives us four different purposes. He says, it's for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So in other words, here's what, here's what he's saying. It's for right thinking, it's for right living, it's for right character, and it's for right relationships. That's what the Bible is for. It's to shape us and give us the right thinking. It's to change us and give us the right living. It's to renew us and give us the right character. And it's to train us in righteousness, which means right relationships with God, with self, and with others. That's what righteousness looks like. And notice that he says it's for equipping, right? That's a key word that he, it's for, scripture is supposed to be used to equip every man and woman of God for every good work. That there's an equipping, it's a tool. It's a chisel that God uses to speak to and, and at us, yet also work through us. That's what scripture does. And if you notice back in verse 14, where we started, Paul says, it's, it's, it's able to make you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. So that the point of the Bible is actually to understand the work that has been done by the God of the Bible to save us and rescue us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And notice the key word wise there. This is always really interesting because the Greek and the Hebrew words for wisdom is not information. It's not getting better at Bible trivia, right? It's not knowledge. It's actually skill. That a wise person is skilled. That they're a craftsperson of life. That they're skilled on how to actually live out a life and, and show competency in how they understand who God is and who they are. It's a knowledge for skillful activity. It's to be equipped to actually do something, not just know something. And if there's one thing that we've seen in Western culture, and there's a good, really good thing, there's a strength in Western culture about the stress of knowledge and information, especially in our information age. It's amazing that we have the access that we do to the information that we do. But the shadow side to that in Western culture is that there's a huge gap now between belief and practice. It's left us with a huge gap between knowing and doing, right? And the information age has happened to, what's, what's done is prioritized information over wisdom, over a lived experience, over actual decision-making. There's lots of people who are really smart, smarter than you and I ever will be, who know lots of things and are fools. That's what the whole book of Proverbs is about right? Is that there's a big difference between acquiring information and actually being wise. And the Bible challenges this constantly by drawing our eyes from knowing to doing. 
from beliefs in our head to our life lived out loud, right? To, to the practical aspect. So with all that in mind, just, just understand that it is not possible for you and I to grow as a follower of Jesus, as a disciple, an apprentice following after Jesus. It is not possible for us to live this life faithfully and grow as a disciple without being a student of the Bible. Okay, so do you consider yourself a student of the Bible? Is it that central for you? Is it that important? Does it take that kind of priority? Because if you consider yourself a disciple, a follower of Jesus, that's what disciple means, right? That disciple actually just means it's the word for learner. It's a word for apprentice. That all of life is actually the working out of, of the kind of, of, of knowing and being and doing of following after Jesus. So we won't grow, we won't change, we won't fight sin, we won't learn, we won't make a difference if we're not listening to what God says. And he speaks through his word. Uh, J.T. English says this really well in his book, Deep Discipleship. It'll be up there for you. It says, study after study suggests that the church has never been less familiar with our sacred text than we are today. Let that one sink in even while we have never enjoyed more access to it. This is exactly the point he's making. We have an abundance of biblical resources, yet a famine of biblical knowledge. Knowledge of God's word is meant to lead to participation in God's story. You can't participate in a story you don't understand. Whew, love it. Notice the key words there though. Understanding. Knowing something is not the same as understanding it. And also notice the key word of participation, that we're caught up in this redemptive story to do something, to actually be a part of this bad boy, right? Like, like we're not just saved to sit down and then go to heaven. Like, like we're actually, we're saved, we're rescued, we're changed, we're re renewed so that we can go out and be agents of renewal, be salt and light in a culture that does not know, nor do they want anything to do with the God that has saved us. There's a participation. So church, like, why don't we have more participation in the church in North America? Why are we settling for the life of the church being what happens on Sunday mornings with, with a bit of fog and lights behind the guitarists and, and, and a little bit of charismatic preaching from the front? Why have we settled for that? Why have we not participated? Because we don't understand the words of God. Why don't we have evangelism? Why don't we have discipleship happening? Why don't we have apprenticeship and mentorship? Why don't we have local mission? Why are we not loving and serving our city and our neighbors? Because we don't understand what we've been invited into. And when we understand it, church, this is not a rebuke. This is a loving reminder. When we understand it, we are so caught up. We are raptured up into the story of God because we're embedded into it because of what Christ has done for us. And then we get to go and throw the rest of our life imperfectly at the story of God and allow the gospel to be the driving force, the fuel behind anything and everything we do as whole disciples of Jesus. I'm excited because through scripture, God is inviting us into deeper relationship with himself. And when we come into deeper relationship with God himself, guess what happens? We end up experiencing greater participation in his mission, in the unfolding story of redemption that is rooted in the gospel reality that what is finished on the cross still continues in his work of redemption throughout creation.
And that is good news, church. That is good news. And we get to be a part of it. Like we get invited into that. If there's anything that should excite us about giving our life to, it's that. It's that. We've settled. We haven't understood. And when we understand, when we truly understand, we can't settle. That's what happens, church. So, so, so just hear me and hear what Paul is doing here. It's so important that the Bible equipping us is not about information. Now we need information. That's true. But the Bible primarily is actually an invitation. And we looked at this in the summer. If you don't know, if, you're, if you don't remember, most of the Bible is story and poetry, right? So most of the Old Testament is story and poetry. There's prophetic writings. There's all sorts of other, there's wisdom literature. There's all sorts of other, there's apocalyptic stuff that none of us understand, right? There's all sorts of amazing genres that make up this library that make up the Bible. But 76% of the Bible is either story or poetry, which means, this is important, most of the Bible is not rules. It's not law. It's not commands from on high. It's story and poetry. And what does that mean? What are the implications of that? that? The implications are major because that means that God is primarily about not dropping law into humanity and then seeing how we do, but instead invitation and formation, right? Stories are an invitation to just get lost, right? That's why I need to like have a healthy diet of fiction in my life just to be immersed in a world that is not here, in a story, in a context with a different setting with, with characters and plot and conflict and resolution, right? I love fiction and I need it because most of my life is nonfiction. You with me on that? Like, like I need resolution in a story because there's so much about life that's like, ah, I want some resolution. So that's, that, that's so important to understand that. But then also poetry, like there's, there's a lot of poetry and poetic writing in scripture. What does that mean? Well, it means that God actually wants to engage you and I at an emotional, aesthetic, artistic, emotive level. That, that, that the primary goal of, of poetry isn't to just communicate information, right? That's not what you do. You don't go to poetry and be like, yeah, it was great. Right? You don't go, you know, don't listen to the inauguration of the spoken word poem that was, that was used last week and be like, that was a helpful information from that young woman. She did great, Right? No, no, you feel it. You feel poetry. Poetry goes deeper than your mind. It actually hits your heart and then invites you into a lived experience to actually feel something, right? That's what poetry does. So church, the fact that the majority of scripture is story and poetry says a lot about the God that inspired scripture. And when we forget this, <laughs> it does all sorts of danger, all, all sorts of, of, of damage. When we forget this, it is possible. This is why it's possible for us to have such a disconnect between, but from, from knowing a lot of stuff and not doing anything, right? Like, like doing nothing, not seeing this as a, a redemptive story we're embedded in, not seeing that God actually cares about how I feel and what's going on in my heart world that he actually does, that he, he wants to be a part of my interior life. This is why it's possible to know lots about the Bible, quote lots of things, be super theological, and then not be formed by the God of the Bible because of this disconnect. You can know stories from the Bible and not know the story of the Bible. That's the point. So knowing that the Bible is mostly story and poetry is a big indicator 
that the Bible's primary aim isn't to just inform us by information that it contains, but instead to form us by the story it tells and then invite us in to participate in that story. And when we get that, I'm telling you, your, your personal devotions, your Bible reading, everything will change. How you listen to sermons will change. Uh, how you prioritize stu- studying scripture with other people in community. Everything will change when we understand this. I was thinking about this this week too. Like if you want to know how something works, right? If you want to re- know how something works, you get a new phone, you get something, you know, a new appliance for the kitchen, whatever it is. Like, like if you want to know how something works, what do you read? Well, you read a manual, Right? Now, a manual, I don't know if for some of you, maybe it does because you're weird, but like manuals don't like poetically inspire me. Like I don't, I don't come away from reading the manual on my microwave going like, oh man, like just aesthetically, it just hit me so like, mm, I don't know how to explain it. Like, right, like we don't do that because manuals don't do that. That's not what manuals are doing, okay? If you want to know how something works, you read a manual, but if you want to know what something means, what do you do? You read story. You read story. And you it just completely take in something like poetry. And I think this is why the church has struggled the way that we have in the West, because we have forgotten our foundational meta story. We've forgotten our story. And instead, we've been shaped by other stories. And we've been shaped by far, far worse stories. And then we're wondering why our life is not lining up with the God of the Bible. It's like, well, but we haven't been shaped by the story that we're invited into. Like we haven't actually been shaped by the story that we're invited to participate in. Instead, we've been shaped by shallow, non-revolutionary, culturally pleasing stories that are not in step with the counter kingdom of Jesus. That's why, right? So it's not, it's not a mystery. And, and understand, understand too, we are story formed creatures. Everyone tells story, regardless of where you land on religion and faith, everyone has a backdrop of story that gives their life meaning. And today in secular culture, secular culture, all the values that we see, all the things that we love to like sit and be like, I can't believe the world is so dark. um, It's a direct result of the stories that they've been told. It's a direct result of the stories that secular culture is telling. So I don't know why we continue to be surprised. Why we, begin to, why we are so surprised by no change in secular culture because we don't even know the story of God and we're not even telling anyone, right? So like secular culture, you are a highly evolved animal with time and chance on your side. There's no transcendent or before meaning or purpose or value. There's no meta narrative to actually locate where we are and why we are. And there's no objective standard of morals or ethics or truth. That, that, that's the story. And then we're surprised that people live the way they do when in culture, the highest good is self-expression and self-fulfillment, which are both self-defined and now here we are. And it leaks into churches and it affects preaching and we make the story of God about us We make it about self-actualization. We make it about being self-defined. We make it about God speaking to me. We make it all sorts of things and depart from the God of the Bible and the story of the Bible in the process. So the Christian claim, brothers and sisters, the Christian claim is that the story of the Bible is not fiction at all. (laughs) That the story of the Bible is the true and alternative story of reality that confronts and conflicts with every other story that we could possibly tell ourselves. The Bible tells a different story 
than what you and I would say about what, what is good and right and true. It does. And what, how, what, what do we call evil and wrong and right? Like the Bible tells us something different. The Bible tells us a different story than left and right, than, than, than liberal and conservative. Tells us a different story than postmodernism and atheism and secularism and relativism and consumerism and capitalism and progressivism and any other ism that doesn't come from God as the only curator of what is true and right. That's what the Bible does. It tells us that kind of story. And when we understand that and get raptured into it, we can't stay the same. And it's the church's job to be vanguards of this story, to, to, to take it, to, to, to be changed by it, to understand it, and then go and share it. Like that, that, that is the proclamation of the gospel, the story that we're living in, the story that we, we understand, the story that we're reflecting in what Jesus has accomplished for us. So this year, when you think about the Bible and you think about reading and some of your goals and some of your plans, if your goal is to get better at Bible trivia, Look smarter at your city group. Um, quote lots of pastors and theologians. Be the smartest person in the room. Quote Bible verses more than you say normal things. Or win arguments. You're doing something wrong. You're doing something wrong. Your posture's wrong. And I think in this last year, man, there's, there's so many things that we could just run to the Bible for to pull them out to go and win arguments about. We could. There's a lot of things actually worth arguing about right now, to be honest. There's a lot of things that we need to work through and dialogue over and debate around because there's a lot of crazy moving pieces right now, culturally, right? And so, yes, we need to do that. We need to do the hard work of that. But if our posture isn't people of God being shaped by the story of God so that we can come and be a part of the mission of God, then we're doing something wrong. And Jay Kim in his book, Analog Church, here's what he says. It'll, it'll be up there for you. It says, the epic and expansive narrative. Okay, remember the bigness of that statement, right? The epic and expansive narrative of scripture is rendered down to a series of disconnected morsels of encouragement and self-help suggestions. When we splice scripture this way and allow it to stand on its own without context or an invitation to engage the entire story, we end up missing out on the learning, growth, and transformation that's only possible when we dive deep into the story from beginning to end and experience its ups, downs, and in-betweens. I think he's right. And so here's what I want to do. With all this in mind, with kind of understanding what 2 Timothy is getting at for us, and with understanding kind of what we need, here's three principles for you and I this year as we approach our Bible, okay? Here's how we're going to apply it in our time uh, that remains, okay? Number one, okay? Always read your Bible to see Jesus. Always read your Bible to see Jesus. Now, there's lots of ways that we, lots of things we call this. It's called like a Christocentric or Christ-centered reading of the Bible. Uh, but the purpose of the Bible, Jesus confirms this over and over and over again. The purpose of the Bible is to actually point us to Jesus, the purpose of the Bible is to point us to why we need Jesus, who Jesus is, and what Jesus has done. That's what the Bible does. And so if we only settle for felt needs and like, well, hey, Bible, give me a pick-me-up emotionally without Jesus, it's very possible to use the Bible and not worship Jesus. And again, like that's entire denominations. 
entire churches that are stuck kind of in this, okay, yeah, but the Bible is like not, not just kind of this means to the end of self-actualization. The Bible is actually a means to the end of knowing Jesus Christ. Like, like the God's revelation throughout history finds its climax in the person and work of Jesus. That's huge. It means that scripture itself is a means to an end. That's true. It's the means to the end though of a relationship with God in and through Jesus. That makes all the difference, doesn't it? That Jesus is the center of our Christian life, not the Bible. Okay, so that, listen, the Bible is not the center of the Christian life. Jesus is. But the Bible is where Jesus meets with us, teaches us, corrects us, shapes us, and changes us. It's a very important distinction because again, even within our Baptist circles, within our kind of reformed tradition, if you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. But in our circle, we have made the Bible the centerpiece of the Christian faith. It's not, it's Jesus. And, and the Bible are written, the inspired written word about the coming of the living word, Jesus Christ. That the Bible is the recording of the incarnated word of God that brings us to Jesus Christ, the incarnated word of God, right? So it is a means to the end, but the means to the end is relationship with the God of the Bible. And practically what this also helps us understand is that the Bible's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about us, right? Doesn't mean there's, there's not things that are happening in the world that we can't relate to or understand because of the Bible, there are. But the Bible is the autobiography of, of a God who, and, 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 of a God who is and what he is like. And then it's the autobiography of the lengths that he has gone to pursue and save and redeem and rescue broken, sinful humanity. And the danger is that when we make the Bible about us or daily pick-me-ups or self-help lessons, we miss who the Bible is actually about. And it's subtle, but it happens. And so if you remember Jesus uniquely, when you take all the religious kind of ideas and philosophies of mankind over the years, Jesus uniquely didn't show up with words about God, right? Because I would just put him on like a shelf with a lot of other people, came and said, well, I got something to say and it's from God. He showed up not with words about God. He showed up as the word of God, right? John 1, the incarnation, the word became flesh. The God who tabernacled, that's the word. That he actually came and dwelt among us. That's different. That creator God stepped into creation. The God that's outside of space and time actually came and condescended himself into space and time. That Jesus as truly, fully God became truly and fully man simultaneously. And Hebrews 1 is, is one of the best, I'm just going to turn there quickly. You don't have to turn there, but listen, what Hebrews 1 reminds us of long ago in the past, at many times and in many different ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Uh, so what does that mean? Well, we're not waiting for other prophets. All of the false prophets who predicted uh, Trump's win, they have to stop. They have to quit ministry, leave the pulpit and never return because they're demonic. There you go. That's just, that's just from here. You're welcome. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Okay, in these last days, remember when this was wrote, written 2,000 years ago? This will mess your eschatology up a little bit, right? In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of everything, through whom also he created the world. He's the beginning and he's the end. 
And he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. And he's the exact imprint, the fingerprint, the very character and nature of God. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You can't make that statement about Jesus and then just go like, I don't know. He's a helpful religious teacher. I'm glad he told us things about God. That's a, so he's either that uh, or he's crazy, right? Like, or, or we just got to go do something else with ourselves, right? Like that, you can't make those statements about who Jesus is and then just come away and be like, he gave us helpful words about God, right? No, 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 that's, that's not what this is saying here. Hebrews 1 actually just said that he is the period. He's the full stop. He gets the last word on who God is. Like Jesus got the last word on who God is and what God is like. That's Jesus. So, so we're not waiting for more prophets. We're not made, waiting for more words. We're not waiting for, for more tweets about what we should do with these end times. We're not doing that. Why? Because he's spoken through his son, full stop, period. And now we get to apply it in these end times. And that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. So do you want to hear from God? Jesus. You want to know what God's like? Jesus. You want to hear God speak? Your Bible. Jesus. Right? That is what it's getting at here. So listen, church, we don't just study the Bible to know more stuff about the Bible. We study the Bible to know Jesus more. That's what we do. That's exactly Jesus's point. I feel like if Jesus was just kind of here in the flesh, because he's still here, but in the flesh right now, I feel like like John 5, 39 through 40 would just be something he repeats or he just like retweets all the time. You search the scriptures because you think that it's in them that you have eternal life. But... It's they that bear witness about me and you refuse to come to me so that I can give you life. There's so much of that happening in, in Christendom right now in broader Christian circles. We need to read to see Jesus. We need to study and understand so that we know more of Jesus. We know more about him. We know more about his heart and about his posture and that we actually learn what it looks like to walk with him and live with him. Okay, that's number one. Number two, number two prioritize learning your Bible in community, okay? Prioritize learning the Bible and studying it in community, okay? The Bible is a library of books. We've already established that, right? Lots of different authors, all that kind of stuff. It's a library of books written by community for community. Now, here's the thing. We've made this about our own personal devotion to scripture, right? Like, like we've really made that in our individualistic kind of self-focused thing that we have here in our culture. We really need a course correction on this because the Bible is actually meant to be studied, unpacked and understood and applied in community, not just personally in your life, although that's true, but embedded in the community that the correct interpretation of scripture doesn't belong to you or to me. God doesn't owe us that. The correct interpretation of scripture belongs to the church as a whole, the church collective, the body as a community of followers of Jesus going after him, okay? And, and this is where we need course correction because honestly, and this is why I'm not guilt, guilt tripping you about your Bible reading plan. Um, you, your private study of scripture shouldn't be actually the primary way that you understand scripture. What's happened is that we've turned quiet times uh, in like, to, and those, our quiet times have actually taken priority over community time. And it's not biblical. It, that's not what we see scripturally at all. It ends up being a very truncated and reductionistic application of the Bible. And then we're wondering why reading Leviticus isn't working for us in 10 minutes in our devotion, right? We're like reading through our Bible reading plan being like, what's secretion? Hmm, 
yeah, Lord, speak to my heart through that. I love all the secretions in Leviticus. Amen. It's like, well, like, of, of course you're not going to be like, sit there and be like, mm, yeah, that's just like, oh man, soul, like just soul enriching to read about all the secretions. Okay, that's not the point. We need to learn in community by, by, again, by teachers who are equipped and given understanding to do what? Equip the saints for the work of ministry. Teach the Bible, teach scripture, take theology, and then make it practice, right? In the context of community. And when we don't do this, okay, when we don't read and study and apply scripture in community, it is so easy to see our private solo interpretation of scripture as the only way to understand it. <laughs> it's so dangerous. We end up reading scripture through the lens of whatever hobby horse or interest or preference or agenda that we have, right? And we end up misinterpreting it and then misliving out of it. That, that's what happens if we don't have community and specifically diverse community, diversity of theological kind of leanings on, on issues, diversity of ethnic and, 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 and cultural issues, diversity of, of experiences coming at our spiritual faith. Also, like that is so enriching. I love that. That's what we need. Not just like, well, here, I saw this on YouTube and it's right, so you're wrong, right? So here, here's the thing, and this is gonna be shocking. You do misinterpret scripture. You do. You misread scripture. So do I. And that's why we need each other. That's why we need others. That's why we need community. Because if you think that you're just gonna sit in your bedroom with your coffee and your Instagram and your Bible, and come out with like this vibrant understanding of scripture, you're wrong because that was never the design in the first place, okay? That, that's what we need. So here, listen, one last, one last quote to help, help support this and I'll tell you what this means for us. Matt uh, Smethurst in his book, um, Before You Open Your Bible, he says, it's imperative, okay? So that's just like super important that we approach scripture alongside others in the context of a diverse community. Here's why. Otherwise, our experiences will limit us our preferences will govern us and our biases will, will blind us. We desperately need other Christians, ideally those who are different from us, to function in our lives as both barrier setters and barrier removers, simultaneously keeping us from reading wrongly and freeing us to read wisely. I think that's very, very pastoral advice for us as the church in this, in this cultural moment especially, that we actually really need one another in how we see scripture and interpret it and then go and apply it. Now, does that mean that there's erroneous, really dangerous interpretations of scripture? Of course there are, but that's why we need community so that we can process those and we can kind of weed those things out and we can go deep and like get into the weeds of scripture and be like, so Leviticus's secretions, what, right? It's like, well, let's get into the weeds of that stuff and let's work through it. Let's learn, let's actually study and understand, right? And this is, this is the beautiful picture we see of the early church in Acts, okay? We're gonna do some work through Acts later this year. But when, you, when we remember like Acts 2, like Holy Spirit shows up, breathes into the church, gives it life, gifts, gifts the church to go out and be on the mission of God by the power of the resurrection, right? And then in, in Acts 2, we see that the church devoted themselves to a few things. And if you notice, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, okay, so that's right teaching, fellowship with one another, breaking of bread, right, and the prayers. And all of those things are done in community, 
Okay, none of those things are done privately and in devotion. And then it goes on and shows us where those things happen. So it actually gives us this blueprint of like, so where should we be doing all that? It says that we're supposed to be doing it in the temple. That's like Sunday gatherings together as the church collect- collectively, and then house to house. And then we're supposed to have favor with all the people. Right? So there's all these different domains and sectors of society where we're supposed to see this overlap as brothers and sisters learning and understanding the gospel. What it doesn't say is that the early church devoted themselves to quiet times and attending church services. Right? Like, just doesn't say it. It's not there. All of those things there are done in community. All of those things there are done with each other. And we don't have time, but there's all sorts of different levels of community and different purposes of different sizes of community. And we'll get into that this year as we kind of parse out some of this stuff. But church, here's what I'm saying. Sola scriptura, the idea that scripture is primarily our authority and only our authority of what is right and wrong and for doctrine and teaching has become so low scriptura. That scripture is the only way that we actually do it and we do it solo by ourselves. And it's, it's not true. It's not true of the historic church. So now don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? Don't hear what I'm not saying. You're not off the hook for personal study, right? You're not off the hook for, for private Bible reading, okay? Personal study and reading of scripture day to day are necessary. They are necessary and important, but they're not more important than life lived in community. They're not. And I know that sounds weird to some of us because we've, we're coming from context where it's like, there's so much guilt put on us of like, you're not doing your Bible readings. And it's like, if we're honest, it's like, well, I want to, but I don't understand anything. And it's like, okay, let's get you into context where we can actually develop and grow in our understanding of scripture. So pastorally, make Bible reading a daily habit. Do it, okay? But, but when done well and when done properly with the right aim in mind, Personal devotion and study contributes to community, right? So every team sport, we know this. Practicing on your own, right? If you don't practice on your own with a team sport and then you show up at the game, well, you're not gonna be very helpful, right, on the team at all. You practice on your own to improve your skills, to, to work on seeing what your weaknesses are and, and, and then improving those so that when it comes time to play on the team and with the team, you're ready. You're an active contributor to the team, right? If you're not practicing and you're not playing, guess what? You're not on the team, right? Like no coach worth their salt. It's gonna be like, it's okay. You don't practice and you're not good. Uh, you can come be on the team anyway. It's like, no, right? That, that's, not, that's not real life, right? What are you gonna do if you're not practicing, you're not playing? Is you're just sitting on the stands in the bleachers eating hot dogs, criticizing players and coaches, right? Hoping that your virtual online internet league is gonna get better or whatever, right? There's a big difference between that. It's like knowing stuff to practice it on your own and then contributing to community versus just sitting and being like, I am by myself and everyone does it wrong, right? So there is a difference. There is a difference. And we need both and not either or for sure. And this is why, and this is just like a little bit of a tease, a tease for us. This is why this year we are really prioritizing. Remember, if, if you don't know our story over the last few years, uh, reach out. I'd love to share it. Um, but kind of the journey we've been on, we're finally at the point where for us at Reach Montreal, We're looking at creating intentional learning environments, okay? So that everyone, regardless of your your life stage or even your spiritual life stage, if you're not even a Christian, just kind of checking out Jesus, working through apologetics and skepticism and all sorts of stuff, it's like we want learning environments for you. 
Uh, and for you, you, you are the next leader. You're the next city group leader. You're the next kids ministry leader. You're the next pastor or church planter that we're gonna be sending out. It's like we want learning environments for everyone at every theological range and at every life stage. That's what we're working through right now. So Sunday gatherings, city groups, DNA groups, men's and women's Bible studies, core classes on theology and Bible study, uh, a one-year discipleship track to train you up as a normal, everyday, ordinary disciple of Jesus, and then advanced theological training and residencies for leaders who are going to be the next teachers and church planters and city group leaders and pastors. That's what we're working on right now. So this year, we're gonna be prioritizing this and I'm gonna be giving a lot of my time and energy to figure out how to get every single one of us the opportunity to actually learn and understand scripture, where we are and how we are. That's what we're gonna be doing. Because here's what I've become, I've become really convinced of. The classroom setting cannot do what a living room setting can, but the, the opposite is true. A living room and experiencing community and being buddies also can't do what the classroom can. And we need both as disciples of Jesus, centered on the word of God so that we're understanding and growing in learning scripture and then going and practicing that out in community, okay? So I'm really excited. But what that's gonna look like over the next few months, uh, just pretend COVID doesn't exist. We'll figure it out, all right? Third and finally, and then we're done. Read in order to worship. And this is where your private study comes in. Read and study the Bible in order to worship. Church, the proper response to God's word and to God himself is worship. It's seeing his beauty. It's understanding his love. It's being in awe of who he is and worshiping him. Good theology, understanding who God is, leads us to good worship, proper worship of who God is in our whole life, in every area of our life, that we're not compartmentalizing things from God, but that we're worshiping God with our whole life as he rearranges our affections, as he tells us his story, as we're shaped by it and invited to participate in it. So listen, the, pr the purpose of theology, knowledge about God is to worship God. The purpose of good theology and good understanding is actually to, to fan into flame the love and affection for God and to fuel us on mission and generosity and obedience. Like that's what good theology does. And we wanna make sure that we actually are matching our spiritual life stage as we do that, as we worship, as we come to scripture and as we look to say, where's Jesus? How can I do this in community better? And how can I read and study in order to worship God? I love Paul's words later in Romans and this is where we'll end. This will be kind of be our sending. But in Romans 11, after, honestly, after two of the most theologically rich chapters in the whole Bible, okay, so remember the disconnect between theology and worship, they don't exist. We need good theology and we need good worship. After two of the most theologically packed chapters of the Bible, listen to what Paul says in Romans 11. It's just beautiful. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. So he's just like, he's just blown away. Like he has knowledge of God and he's blown away by who God is. How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths are beyond tracing out. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever, amen. I love that. So church, with all this in mind, may this be our response to God this year. 
May this be how we want to hear from him in his word, how we want to see him more clearly through his word, and then worship him truly in response to what he shows us in his word. Let me pray for us to that end. Father, we do thank you that we are not just looking for information and trying to figure this out on our own, but that you've actually come and you've embedded yourself into the story of human history to rescue us and save us. And Jesus, we're just so thankful that it is finished, that truly the work of redemption is done, but your story continues and we're actually invited to participate in it. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to renew our mind and to convict our heart and to also be the comforter that you promised to be, to empower us, to give us boldness and to illuminate our heart and mind on who you are so that we do have good theology, that we understand truly and rightly who you are and that we would continue to seek for good understanding, right understanding of who you are and what you call us to. I'm so thankful for us, so thankful for everybody um, that calls our church home and anybody else, Lord, who is visiting that is really just um, looking for, for how to make this um, a priority in their life. And I pray that you would just encourage them, encourage each one of us in our own devotion to you, but also our commitment to community, and that we would really begin to see how we can participate in your mission and do that together for your glory and for your name. We ask these things, the only name that does matter or ever will, in Jesus' name, amen.